Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, history, and politics. Today's session will be on the future of work. Our speaker will be Nick Bloom, who is professor of economics at Stanford. Nick is a leader in the research on working from home. It turns out that hybrid work increases productivity for some employees, and it makes them happy. Technologists are aware that work from home has changed the nature of employment, and substantial R&D is being spent to improve the Zoom experience with dozens of cameras to make it seem like we really are together. What Happens Next uses a team of interns to make this program, and I have job openings. Interns improve the podcast by selecting topics of discussion, editing, and production. If you're interested, please let me know. I make this podcast to learn, and I offer this program free of charge to anyone that is interested. Please tell your friends about it, and have them sign up to receive our weekly emails about upcoming shows. If you enjoy today's podcast, please subscribe so you can continue to enjoy this content. Today's podcast was recorded at Stanford in conjunction with an event to honor my old boss and close friend, Myron Scholes, the Nobel Prize winner in economics. He will join us in this podcast with some very provocative questions. All right, let's please get started with this session with Nick Bloom. Go ahead, Nick. I'm going to talk about work from home. What I'll do is talk about three things. One is where we currently are. Two is the impacts of working from home, and then I'll talk a bit about the future. So where are we currently? 1965 is the first data we have. In America, about half percent of days will work from home. Now, when I was a kid, my parents used to work from home. It was pretty unpleasant. They did it for childcare reasons. I'm one of four kids, so trying to look after us. Work from home levels went up about tenfold between 65 to 2019. That's just over 50 years. So in 2019, on the eve of the pandemic, 5% of days in America will work from home. The pandemic happens, it goes from 5% to 60%. I'm guessing everyone in this room probably is working from home full-time in March, April, May, June, 2020. It's then fallen back down and it's now kind of asymptoting out at about 30%. So the two critical numbers are from 5% in 2019 to 30% now. So we've seen a six-fold increase and it looks like that's sticking. So the last three, four months have been about 30%. Well, there are actually three groups. Just over half of Americans, 55% of people, cannot work from home at all. The folks working in Chipotle or McDonald's or in the university cleaners, catering, security, etc. There's another group at the other extreme, which are full-time remote. They're about 15%, mostly like call centers, payments processing, HR. The remaining groups, about a third, is professionals, managers. They're basically almost entirely hybrid. Monday, Friday, you work from home. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you come in the office. Globally, America, Canada, Northern Europe looks very similar, about 30%. If you go to Asia, Australia, New Zealand, levels are lower. In South America, Africa, levels are lower still, but the increase is very large. So work from home was very low, surged up to 60%, and has dropped to 30%. It's probably the largest change to U.S. labor market since World War II when you had a big increase in female labor force participation. It's hard to think of anything that's been that massive. The donut effect is the impact of work from home on cities. We've got data from the United States Postal Service change of address and from Zillow transactional data. And what you see is a lot of people have moved out from city centers into the suburbs. So to give you an example, you're some techie, you're living in central San Francisco in 2019, you're going into work every day, suddenly you figure out, hey, look, I'm only ever going to be going to the office two, maybe three days a week. I'd really like a bit of space for a home office, maybe a backyard for my kids. You move out to the suburbs. If you own property in Tahoe or East Bay, you've probably done very well. If you own property in the center of San Francisco, you're probably about flat. It's been even more extreme for retail. 
I've worked with a few retailers and they've seen sales collapse in the city center. So think of like Panera Bread or Starbucks. No one's going in every day, particularly Monday, Friday sales have really plummeted, but out in the suburbs, they're doing really well. Impact number two is on firms and organizations, employees, they're much happier. We've surveyed tens of thousands of people and there's some randomized control trials maybe I'll talk about if I have time, but basically people really like hybrid. So if you ask people, how much would you value being able to work from home two, three days a week? You typically get numbers at about a five, 10% pay increase. Why is that? Well, the big reason is, you know, you save on commute, it's less stressful. You have two days a week, you can work from home. Most people don't want to work from home five days a week. Only about 25% of people do. Most people want to come in two, three days a week, work from home two, three days a week. Another finding pretty clearly in the data is well-organized hybrid, which is when everyone comes in on the same two or three days a week and works from home on the same two or three days a week, seems to improve productivity. If you come in Tuesday, Thursday, and everyone comes in having meetings, presentations, lunches, training events, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you're at home. The evidence is productivity is actually up. And the big reason is, A, on your home days, you save a lot of time. The average American saves 70 minutes a day by working at home. Of that, about 30 minutes goes on more work, 40 minutes goes on more leisure. So if you're an employer, your employee works about 30 minutes more a day. It's a win-win economically if we get it right. The third thing that's interesting is around globalization. Going back to the 80s is a big globalization of trade. And the kind of salient event was China joining the World Trade Organization in 2001. Over the 20 years after, there was a huge surge in global trade in manufacturing. That looks like it's running out of steam. What I think is going to happen for the next 20 years is globalization of services. I must have talked to 300 organizations since the beginning of the pandemic. Lots of firms, they all kind of say the same thing, which is there are some individuals or some tasks that have been fully remote for the last two years, and they've actually been really good. We maybe just don't need them in the organization, or maybe we don't need them in the state or in the country. The next 20 years, there's going to be a big surge of outsourcing, like take Stanford, like our IT department or payroll. They're fully remote. They just don't need to be in California. I talk to a lot of tech firms, and they are swiveling hundreds of millions of dollars of R&D budget towards making technology to support work from home. What that means is if you look five or 10 years out, the technology is going to be way, way better to support this. Bigger screens, lots of little microphones, lots of little cameras. You think of when you go to watch a football game on TV, there isn't one camera. There's like 10 cameras and they keep changing. First topic is the economics of cities. Studies show that computer scientists, skill-adjusted, who work in Silicon Valley or San Jose get paid more. And you're suggesting that it doesn't matter where you work. What are the implications for the economics of cities if you can work from anywhere? It's almost all good. There's this whole affordability crisis. For a lot of cities, are too expensive. So people and jobs have moved out a bit. The one person or group that loses is politicians whose tax take is very narrowly defined because techies are living out in the suburbs. They're paying taxes in the suburbs. They're not using Caltrain or BART. The revenue's gone somewhere. It's not disappeared. Why haven't we seen a real decline in center city's residential real estate prices? If we're spending more time at home, we value housing services more and other services less. I care slightly less about eating great food. I maybe care slightly less about other things, but I care a lot more about home because I'm just in it more of the day. The supply of houses in the short run is basically fixed. So you have more spending chasing after the same amount of property. Commercial property is in trouble. It hasn't 
collapsed. Interesting enough, because firms are struggling to downsize. A lot of execs have said, people are coming in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but I can't sublease the office Monday, Friday. Young people are more social, and they lose the chance to be mentored. They're the big losers in the move to hybrid. But strangely, if you ask many of them if they prefer hybrid, they love it. Why is that? We've been surveying 10,000 people a month since the beginning of the pandemic. I think at this point, we probably have the best high-frequency data in the U.S. and work from home. We know people's demographic, and if you look at it, the average number of days per week people want to work from home, it's about two and a half, but it's rising with age. And the other thing is what share of people want to work from home fully remote, and for 20 to 29-year-olds, it's 24%. The reason they don't is mentoring and socialization. In fact, I spoke to David Solomon, the head of Goldman Sachs, about a month ago, because Goldman's is very aggressively pushing back to the office. Why are you doing this? And He said mentoring. If you're Airbnb and you've said you're going fully remote, you're going to struggle to hire 20-somethings. You're going to be really attractive to 30, 40-somethings with young kids. Apple that said we're going to have folks come in three days a week is going to pick up a lot of 20-somethings. So these strategic decisions on work from home impact who you hire. Our next question comes from Jeff Benjamin. Work from home changes the dynamic between capital and labor by reducing switching costs. A lot of us here, like Larry, we worked at Solomon in the 80s, and we developed these friendships. Switching costs were higher. If I work from home full-time, switching costs involve changing my email address. I don't have any social (laughs) relationships. Doesn't that change the balance of power between workers and firms, and does that have implications on future allocations? Some big tech firms and a bunch of startups Fully remote, the evidence is turnover is a lot higher for exactly the reasons you say. Even for hybrid, turnover is higher because it's easier to search for a job and it's easier to interview. <laughs> Disappearing off really smartly dressed, you know, kind of, it's like suspicious. You've got to come up with something. If you're hybrid, you can, of course, interview on Monday and Friday. And talking to a lot of recruitment people, they say interviews are searched on Monday and Friday. In macroeconomics, there's this whole search and matching. And I think the frictions are going to go down for hybrid even, and particularly for fully remote. So you're right, this is changing stuff a lot. Our next speaker is David Costin, who is the chief equity strategist at Goldman Sachs. Working at Goldman for almost 30 years, we have 45,000 people, half of whom are engineering related, and they have more flexibility, and a lot of them work from home remotely. If you're more client-facing, if you will call that, more of the people pretty much in the office. You don't want to be in the office, work somewhere else. Maybe it's not for the entire firm, it's by job function. Preferences vary. 18% of people want to come into the office five days a week. 30% want to be fully remote, and the remaining 50% want to be hybrid. So it makes total sense to have an economy where there are some firms saying you come in full-time, there are others saying you can be fully remote, and others saying hybrid. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think everyone needs to follow one model. Post-pandemic, it's hard because you inherit a stock of people that are very heterogeneous in preferences, but over time, firms would head towards one policy. Our next question comes from Nobel Prize winner Myron Schulz. Go ahead, Myron. If you know what you have to do with certainty, either you can do it at home or in the office. You can be a technician or a computer programmer, you know what your tasks are, you can do it remotely, okay? The more uncertainty there is, the need flexibility. In the future, we're gonna have more software to figure out how to get together and to be connected and not necessarily be in the office. But then if you get so much uncertainty, then you need ideas and teams. It has to do with uncertainty and what the task involved and how you interact with people. If we can handle the uncertainty, then we can have more remoteness and trades off the cost of commuting with the cost of living in the cities, etc. One of the issues you want people in is when there's problems. 
and they need to be resolved at incredibly high speed, and it's often faster if people are there. So some organizations have a very different model. We want one lawyer in every day. So exactly don't want to come in on the same day. So we need coverage because we can't predict what's going to happen when. For academics, it works reasonably well. We have our seminars, we teach, we know when we need to be and we know when we need to be at home. But for some jobs, when things are very unpredictable, yes, it gets a lot harder to schedule it. Our next question comes from John Cochran from the Hoover Institute. What fundamental things of the economics of cities do we learn? So why did we used to move to cities and work at the factory rather than work at home? Well, one, monitoring. A lot of stuff in the 1800s was done at home because you knit a sweater, you bring them a sweater. Aha, you can do that at home. Move to the factory and we can watch people and make sure they don't goof off. Technology lets you monitor people or if they're at home on Zoom, maybe they're at home shopping on Amazon. Two, we moved to the factory because there was a big machine in the factory and there wasn't a big machine at home. The cities were supposed to be these fixed costs of providing amenities. There's only one opera. Now, that kind of works against that we're all going to go out to the suburbs, except what I'm noticing is that the cities are becoming where rich, retired people go for the amenities. New York real estate's still doing okay. The big loser is the Ed Glazer view, the magic of agglomeration, and we all have to be together and informal ideas and so forth. That seems to be completely wrong. I'm curious what you've learned. In the office, you can monitor inputs. If you're my manager, you can see if I'm like typing away, working, talking to people seem to be productive. That's maybe not best management practices, but it's doable. It's like management by walking around. As soon as I go remote, input evaluation collapses. It is only output evaluation or nothing, which is why early on in the pandemic, all these horror stories of the surveillance software and people watching your face as you're working on your camera and randomly screenshotting is because these were badly managed firms that were using input management. So there's been an enormous movement in organizations to move to output management. The next question comes from Brandy Stellings at Vistry Late, who specializes in diversity and inclusion strategies. What is your data showing you in terms of differences by gender and by race? I've seen a lot of research that shows that preferences for remote and hybrid are higher for women and also for people of color, and then most strikingly for women of color, and in particular, black women. Black women in particular reported being happier and feeling more included in their organizations when they worked remotely, because they just weren't reminded every time they went in that they were the only black woman there. So what are you seeing in terms of race and gender, and what do you think the long-term impacts are, the proximity bias or mentoring and sponsoring and so forth? Factually, all genders, all demographics, ages all want to work from home, typically between two to three days a week on average. But you're correct, there's some variation. There's a slightly higher level for women, not a lot, a much bigger pickup for people with young children. You also do see a higher level for minorities. We ask people, are you a minority in your workplace, which is defined less than 10% of your colleagues are in this, by age cell, by race, by religion, by politics and by gender. People that are in a minority by any of those are happier working from home. What happens if we agree to work in the office just three days a week, but the boss comes in every day? And if a select group of employees show up in the office five days a week, they'll be ahead of the others who do not. Will this create a serious problem for the stay-at-homers? It's probably a good idea to try and nudge people to stay home, particularly senior leadership on the home days. 
Otherwise, you have this horrible real fear of missing out. I've done two randomized control trials. One was back in 2010. We took 250 employees and we randomized them by even on odd birthdays and whether they got to work from home for four days a week or not. The people that work from home for four days a week, after nine months, they had a 50% lower promotion rate. And actually, performance was better. These are in call centers. This isn't a very technical job. Partly they're forgotten about and partly they're just not developing managerial skills. So you can imagine how this breaks by gender, race. I would be relatively organized about having people come in on the same days within team. I did a second randomized control trial. 1,600 professionals. These are like MBAs, grads, coders, marketers, finance folks. Half of them work, came in the office five days a week. The other half randomized, but even on birthdays, work from home two days a week. And we evaluated, and after six months, you found the folks working from home two days a week, their quit rates were down by a third, and lines of code written, which is one of their best performance metrics, was up by 8%. And so the company looked at this and was like, well, labor costs are down, revenue's up, space costs are down, there's no downsides. It's just profit maximizing. Tell us about the success and failures of being fully remote at work. I've spoken to several big companies that have gone fully remote. Adam D'Angelo, who's the founder of Quora, and I had a long call with him about why he went to fully remote. He's a super smart guy, and it's look, there are two upsides. I save an office space, and it's easier to recruit, but it's harder to mentor, and it's harder on creativity. And then you have big upsides and big downsides. If you look at fully remote firms with high-skilled employees, they're not actually fully remote. Airbnb or Upwork or Automatic, they still have people come for like a week every other month and meet up. As far as I'm aware, it's really hard to get fully, fully, fully remote where you just never physically meet. Every other month, they have a week in Albuquerque or in Barcelona or something because this human interaction turns out to be a big deal even in these supposedly fully remote firms. Nick, I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? Work from home, I think it's a permanent change. I think the big thing that's going to change going forward is going to be technology. And the rate of change of technology to be much faster now, it's generated a surge in startups. If you look at the rates of business creation in the US, they dropped after the pandemic. They're now about 20% above pre-pandemic levels and remained high. A lot of the reason it's just cheaper. If you're working from home, it's cheap to start up a new business. It's been a bit of a boom in terms of startups. Thanks to Nick Bloom for joining us today. If you missed last week's session, check it out. Our speaker was Yale historian Paul Kennedy, who is well known for his classic work, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. The Kennedy Podcast was the final in a four-part series on the history of World War II that discussed the battles beginning in 1944 and ending with Japan's unconditional surrender. Paul Kennedy is an incredible speaker and is very provocative. I promise you'll love it. You can find all of our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please encourage your friends to join the What Happens Next community by signing up for our free weekly updates about upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I would love for you to listen to more of them. All you need to do is subscribe. So please take a moment to do so on the website, or please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.